I'm reading from Romans chapter 7, verses 14 to 25. Romans 7, 14 to 25. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want but I do the very thing that I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree that the law is good. So then, it's no longer I that do it, but sin which dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells within me, that is, in my flesh. I can will what is right, but I cannot do it. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I do. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I that do it, but sin which dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inmost self, but I see in my members another law at war, with the law of my mind, and making me captive to the law of sin, which dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am! Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. So my question is, is it spiritual perfectionism that's driving the inner conflict that Paul is talking about? Is it spiritual perfectionism that's driving the inner conflict that Paul's talking about. If you do a web search, you'll find people like me who are recovering perfectionists, and they talk about their struggle. I mean, by the way, I didn't know that I was a perfectionist until I was 43. At that time, I was teaching pastoral care at um, Park and Wesley in Adelaide. It's no longer called Park and Wesley. And so we invited a leadership expert to help us to build a leadership team. And one of the things that they often do is they do some psychological testing. What kind of personality type are you? Because it helps people to work better together if you know what type they are. So we did the testing, and then she meets with us, and she says, Andrew, you're type X. Vicky, you're type Y. And Neil, you're a perfectionist. And it came as a complete shock. But as I've reflected on it, maybe it's true. Anyway, this is an account of someone struggling with spiritual perfectionism and was posted by Christopher Chapman. In the Christianity of my upbringing, emphasis rested firmly on the doing of good works and the acquisition of personal holiness. The image in my mind was of a many-runged ladder. At the top of the ladder lay perfection, a state of purity where weakness was definitively overcome and goodness perpetually shone. Rung by rung, I was to pull myself up towards the goals through effort, prayer, and penitence. I'm not sure anyone ever gave me this picture of spiritual development in its complete form. Instead, I pieced it together from my education in family, church, and school, stories of the saints emphasized the purity of their hearts and minds. Good behavior was praised and bad behavior was punished. At school, I gained a new brightly colored star 
For each times table I mastered, progress was measured competitively through grades, upper or lower sets for classes and prize-giving ceremonies. The path of sanctity likewise led straight and true along the line of obedience to external expectations. There was a threshold to be crossed, dividing achievement from failure, renown from obscurity, end of quote. Spiritual perfectionism. So I want to begin to unpack the issue of spiritual perfectionism by looking at the way the Swiss psychoanalyst Carl Jung approached the Roman passage. Now Jung's an interesting character. He was being groomed to take over the, psychological, the psychoanalytic movement from Sigmund Freud. But the pair had a falling out and they, went, they each went their own particular way. And Jung started his own approach called uh, analytical psychology. So <coughs> Freud was uh, dismissive of Christianity and of religion in general. He saw worship as obsessive compuls compulsive behavior and belief in God as wish fulfillment, as projection. But Jung had a strong appreciation for the spiritual life. Uh, he grew up in the parsonage. His father was a Swiss reform minister. He had two uncles who were also pastors. Jung himself attended confirmation classes and in those days you learnt serious Bible, serious theology to do confirmation, to be confirmed in the, the Swiss reform church back in the 20s or whenever it was. His psychological writings contain over a hundred references to the Bible. He shows a sophisticated grasp of theology. So, for example, when he's grappling with the problem of evil, he talks about Augustine's idea of evil as the privation of the good, which is quite a sophisticated theological idea. Jung can quote theological doctrines in the original Latin, for example. So I'm going to say a bit about Jung's psychological ideas in a minute, but why do I want to do that? Why not just focus on Bible and theology? Why am I bothering with Jung? Because Jung engaged heavily with this passage, the Romans passage, and he forces us to ask fresh questions, difficult questions, different questions than we get from all the commentaries on this passage. That's why I'm looking at Jung initially. Um, Jung engaged strongly with the Bible, not only this Romans passage, he wrote a whole book-length treatment called Answer to Job, and you'll find some biblical commentators at least that engage with it. And as I mentioned, Jung's also very interested in this Romans passage. For him it was a tough text because he thought that what Paul was talking about with this inner tension, this inner struggle, between the inmost self that's orientated to God and God's will and this uh, sinful self, the law of sin that keeps bending him away, was really the problem for Christians because Christians, he thought, were caught in this trap of, of spiritual perfectionism and he wanted to liberate them. He said, only Christ is without sin. You guys just need to focus on being whole. Don't worry about being perfect, just be whole. And he didn't, so he found that the Romans passage was problematic because he thought it was what happens when you get into this deep spiritual and psychological tension that's tearing you apart because you try to be perfect. Only Jesus is perfect, says Jung. Now, perfectionism is indeed an issue for the, for the Christian. 
Recall the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Are we really called to Christian perfection? Well, John Wesley believed that we were. John Wesley taught the doctrine of entire sanctification. For him, it wasn't uh, just a nice thought. Well, it would be nice if we could be entirely sanctified. It would be nice if we could reach a state of Christian perfection. He believed it was happening in his own time. He could point to people in his own time who had stated that they had experienced entire sanctification and he believed them. So I'll just give you a couple of quotes from the time that give examples of this. Mrs. M, we don't know the rest of her name, just Mrs. M. She wrote a letter to John Wesley and she says this. Dear Sir, on May the 3rd, 1757, I was speaking of two persons that were made perfect in love. That's entire sanctification. When he spoke, God said to my heart, this is what you want. Without it, you can't be happy. From that day, my convictions were exceedingly great. But I believed he has done this for many. He may do it for me. End of quote. George Clark is one of the others that was um, said that he had reached a stage of Christian perfection. He records this in his journal. I was in company with some who feel nothing contrary to love and who have constant communion with God. Hereby, my hope was much strengthened of an entire deliverance from sin, that I might be truly holy, totally renewed in the image of my mind by the powerful working of the Spirit of Jesus. End of quote. Later, Clark wrote this in his journal. I find much peace, power, and love. As to inward conflicts, I don't feel them. Yet do I never forget that I'm in the body and continually subject to temptations from my own ignorance and weakness, from the world and the devil, and also from weak brethren. But I find constant communion with God and not afraid of being overcome with evil. So did Wesley think that a Christian should expect to be sinless? Well, no. Not sinless. For, for Wesley, sin was about a voluntary, conscious decision to transgress God's law. So, for example, if I am ticked off by someone and I feel hateful feelings and I want to do something bad to them, like yell abuse at them, and then I willingly do that, then that's <coughs> sin. But Wesley said that there's also sin that's unwitting through ignorance or through error. So he made allowances for the fact that you don't have to be sinless. Only Christ is sinless, but you can still be a person who's reached Christian perfection. So if you keep sinning, how are you perfect? Well, for Wesley, perfection was to have the habitus of love. To be perfect, to be entirely sanctified, was to have the habitus of love. So he's borrowing that from Aristotle. Aristotle, in his virtue theory, talked about a habitus as a readiness to act with virtue. So if I've got the habitus of courage, I'm so trained and shaped and formed in courage that whenever a situation requires it, I've got the habitus, the readiness to act. I instinctively act with courage, not cowardice. So the habitus of love means that 
that a person has got this readiness always to act in love. They might get it wrong sometimes unwittingly and sin, but their intention is to be perfected in love. So I went down this track of Christian perfection because of Jesus' words, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Let's think a little bit more about that. It comes from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew. The verses prior are these. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbour and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be the children of your Father in heaven. So the children of God are those who love even their enemies. Now the Greek word that's translated as perfect in the NRSV is teloi. Now, at least one Mathean scholar says, don't translate teloi as perfect, translate it as whole. Be whole as your heavenly Father is whole. What does it mean to be whole? To have a habitus of love even to, that extends even to your enemies. Bless those who persecute you. Then you'll be whole. Then you'll love as the Father loves. Now, Jung would have loved that translation. Because remember he said... Don't go for perfection, go for wholeness. So Jung promoted the path of spiritual wholeness as, as reconciling the inner opposites. So there are these various inner opposites like the introvert and the extrovert, the male and the female, the persona and the shadow. What's the persona and the shadow? Well, persona is your public mask. It's your conventional presentation to the world that's very acceptable. So what are you seeing at the moment? Neil Pembroke's preaching persona, his pastor persona. When I'm with my uh, grandkids, very different. When I'm on the tennis court, also very different. I'm the most mild-mannered, relaxed person in the world, on the, except on the tennis court. Oh, by the way, that, that's what led me to, to know that that analysis of me was correct about being a perfectionist. Um, so I used to play state tournaments, won some state titles, take tennis incredibly seriously. And I reflected about it. And I can win a set 6-2. I can hit 100 good shots. But all I can think about for a day is those three really bad shots. That's perfectionism for you. It really drives your crackers. Um, so that's, the persona is the, is the public face. The shadow is the dark side. We would say the sinful side. And what Jung said is that you've got to bring these inner opposites into a state of reconciliation. So Jung looked at what Paul says in Romans 7 and thought that he saw a very good illustration of what happens if you strive for perfection rather than holiness. And he said that Paul is talking about two inner opposites. Uh, and he's absolutely right about that. If you read the text, there are these two inner selves. Uh, Thomas Merton would call it the true self and the false self. And he says the false self is illusory. It's a contradiction. It was never meant to be. You are meant to be your true self. What's your true self? The self that's hidden in God through Christ. The self that lives in union with Christ. That's filled with the love of the Spirit. That's the true self. But the false self is always there. So there's these two opposing selves. The inner self that's orientated to God's will, the true self. And then the law of sin, the false self that's bending him away. So you all got that right. This is what we read in our passage. I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, 
if I do the very thing that I hate. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do good, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inmost self, but I see in my members another law at war with the law of my mind. Wretched person that I am, wretched man that I am. So there are these two principles at war in the Christian. One that's orientated to God's law, the true self. One that's sinful and rebellious, the sinful self. Now the law of sin, from a theological point of view, can be likened to a squatter. Because a squatter has no legal right to be there. But a squatter is incredibly hard to evict. So that's what we live with. And Paul talks about this squatter and he says, we are sold into slavery under sin. But then there's our better self that seeks to live in love and faithfulness to God. And this is in a war going on. And so the, the quote ends with, wretched man that I am. And Jung jumps on that and says, see what happens? You end up in a state of wretchedness. But my question is this. Why does Jung stop reading at that point? Why does he not read the next verse? What's the next verse say? Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So we don't end in a state of wretchedness. We end in a state of freedom, peace, and joy. That's our inheritance, freedom, peace, and joy, which is a very good thing because it would be a very hard evangelistic strategy if you said to the world, come to Christ and you'll end up in wretchedness. No one wants to be in wretchedness, clearly. So Luther celebrated the freedom in Christ by talking about a blessed exchange. And the blessed exchange uh, has to do with the way medieval marriages were conducted. In a medieval marriage, there was an exchange of the wed, W-E-D, so we get the contemporary English word wedding from wed. What is a wed? It's a gift. So when Luther talks about this blessed exchange, he's talking about this exchange of gifts. And so Christ is the bridegroom. And what does Christ bring? Christ brings freedom, joy, righteousness, freedom from sin. What do we bring? Our gift is unrighteousness, sin, and all the rest of it. So Luther said, well, there's kind of this tension that we have to live in because there are these two opposites. And he talked about the Christian being simul justus et peccator, which means at once being righteous and justified and also a sinner. So how could it be, if we've got this tension, how could it be that we're truly free? Well, Luther said, the emphasis is on the first part, you are righteous and a sinner. You are truly judged righteous by God. In God's eyes, you are right, good, full of quality. There's no condemnation for those who come to Christ with faith. I may not be able to evict the squatter, but the squatter has no power over me. The false self has no power over me. I don't have to say, wretched man, wretched woman that I am. That's not my story. My story is, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. Amen.